Hello, and welcome to the Mapping the Doctrine of Discovery podcast. The producers of this podcast would like to acknowledge with respect the Onondaga Nation, firekeepers of the Haudenosaunee, the indigenous peoples on whose ancestral lands Syracuse University now stands. And now, introducing your hosts, Philip Arnold and Sandra Victory. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Phil Arnold, Associate Professor and Chair of the Department of Religion at Syracuse University, as well as core faculty member of Native American Indigenous Studies and the founding director of the SCANO Great Law Peace Center at Onondaga Lake. I'm Sandy Bigtree. I'm a citizen of the Mohawk Nation at Akwesasne, and Phil and I are founding members of the Indigenous Values Initiative, which fosters collaborative educational work between the academic community and the Haudenosaunee to promote their message of peace that was brought to Onondaga Lake thousands of years ago. Today, we're going to be speaking with David Carrasco, and I have to interject here a little bit of my story because it's so connected, this um, relationship we have with David. In 1978, um, I was... um, a well-known performer in central New York in Onondaga Nation territory. And I was approached by the Onondaga Nation to help them open up the doors to informing non-Native people about this special relationship the Haudenosaunee had with the founding of the United States. And I was um, so honored to be approached in this way but I didn't have a clue how to help them because I had not heard about this legacy from my family. And it was certainly nothing that was taught in public schools. So I was rather um, panicked about what it was I could do and what eventually happened is I just left Syracuse. And I went on a journey to try to find out how could I be helpful. And I got involved in a couple different tangents directives and ended up in Boulder, Colorado. And this is where I met Phil. And um, he was taking a class with David Carrasco at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And um, Phil was just telling me how amazing your classes were. And it was uh, life-changing for Phil and became life-changing for me. And um, we were invited to go on several trips to Mexico where you do the bulk of your research. And and your work at that time. We were part of a very large collaborative. And um, what this opened up to me was the problem of religion and why we didn't know any of these stories about this connection with the Onondaga Nation to the great law of peace, something that had existed on this continent for thousands of years. And what was so interesting about the history uh, history of religions is because it viewed religion from a critical standpoint and discussing um, colonialism. And and that clicked for Phil and it clicked for me. How are we supposed to move forward if we don't address the problem? So anyway, everybody, uh, David Carrasco. Yeah, I wanted to say a few things too. <laughs> um, nothing embarrassing, but, um, but I do want to make sure everyone knows uh, how how fortunate we are to have David Carrasco with us. Um, Professor Carrasco is the Neil L. Rudenstein Professor of the Study of Latin America at Harvard University, um, Mexican-American historian of religions, um, with a particular interest in Mesoamerican cities as symbols and the Mexican-American borderlands. David Carrasco was trained as a historian of religion at the University of Chicago in Boulder. And as Sandy was saying, or sorry, (laughs) history of religions uh, at the University of Chicago and (laughs) is inspired by a lot of questions that we're uh, categorizing today as the doctrine of Christian discovery. Um, As Sandy had outlined um, in the early 80s, um, we became involved with uh, the Moses Mesoamerican Archive and Research Project, which is the brainchild of Professor Carrasco. Started in Boulder, Colorado, moved to Princeton University, and is now at Harvard University, still a thriving enterprise. 
that has um, inspired a number of young scholars and um, is still doing tremendous work. Um, David is the author of several books that I won't mention here, but many of them have to do with um, the issues of conquest, discovery, domination. So thank you for coming, David. Uh, and I would like for you to say a few words of introduction of your, to yourself. Well, thank you very much, Phil and Sandy Bigtree. <laughs> it's great to see both of you, uh, hear your voices, and to be part of this very important, uh, even profoundly important uh, series of uh, presentations and dialogues for the public about the Christian uh, uh, doctrine of discovery. I am um, uh, very grateful to be here with you, to see you thriving in Syracuse, and to have been able to keep on this, uh, keep this working relationship with you, learning and working relationship with you over these years. So, uh, you know, whatever else I say, I just want to say I'm, I'm thankful and also very proud of, of you and the work that we, uh, we do together and, and how I keep learning from you uh, in terms of these uh, initiatives that you've taken uh, up there in the area, the Syracuse area. Thanks, David. Um Let's start at the beginning. Um, so, you know, in my formation, particularly around the archive and your work, um, you know, a central question of religion has always been uh, colonialism, right? Um, colonialism, conquest, and domination. And I wonder if you could talk about how you became attracted to the history of religions around these questions of colonialism, um, because you're really the person in our first season here who deals with religion as a central organizing principle. Sure. I think that um, I use the word beginning. One of my beginnings of my awareness of this uh, relationship between colonialism, its destructive um, and generative uh, history and, and religion came when I was a teenager, I went to live in Mexico City for the first time. My father was the uh, was there to train Mexican coaches uh, to prepare uh, for the Olympic Games. And I had what I call my Aztec moment. Um, my aunt, Milena Sofero, uh, took me to the, to the Museum of Anthropology, which at that time was the old museum down near the Zocalo. And uh, I went into the, the museum uh, in, in Mexico City, near the center of the city. And uh, I saw for the first time um, wonderful, beautiful, intimidating objects, things that had been made by indigenous hands, uh, that reflected indigenous minds. Uh, uh, and I saw the Aztec calendar stone, which is a profound expression of, of, uh, of story and mathematics, uh, of the relationship that these people felt they had with the landscape and with nature. Uh, I saw uh, masks that these people had made to express alternative personalities that often uh, were related to deities and ancestors. I, I saw images of, of paintings that these people had made. Uh, and it just really upset me uh, in ways I couldn't understand at the time. I remember walking out into the Zocalo. Now, the Zocalo of Mexico City is really a colonial space. It's a place of colonial architecture. Uh, it has great influences from the Spaniards and from Christianity. The, the cathedral is there. The governmental palace is there. The Supreme Court is there. Uh, and all of them in kind of uh, the form of Spanish colonialism. So while I was walking around out there with this sense of disturbance at what I'd seen in the museum, uh, what came to me was, you know, uh, in a sense, uh, an internal struggle that I was having that represented not only my identity, but my education in the United States. Um, and uh, this complicated contradiction between what I saw in the museum and what I saw outside in the Zocalo, because on the one hand, what came to the surface when I saw these things made by indigenous people was a sense of shame 
that uh, I had internalized anti-Mexican, anti-indigenous attitudes in my education in the United States, and that uh, they were being shattered uh, in this experience. And so I, I felt this, uh, this sense of, of shame that I had, I had really been miseducated. But at the same time, on the other side of my chest, where I was having these feelings, was a feeling of great curiosity uh, about these people, about what they had achieved, and what was the contradiction between what was inside the museum and what was out there in the Zocalo, just in the architecture and the things that were, were made to communicate to passersby, what was the identity of the Mexicans? And so I call this my Aztec moment because I, I realized I was discovering uh, this part of my own, uh, my own identity. My father was a Mexican uh, and we were in Mexico City because of his connection with Mexico's complexity. And, and so on the one hand, I felt shame, but I felt this curiosity and I felt I needed to understand more about this contradiction between the Spanish architecture, which was colonial, which was monumental, and also the things that had been made by indigenous people themselves. So this Aztec moment taught me that I wasn't white or black. I was a mixture of these things. And it stimulated in me this profound curiosity to know what these two, these two in a sense, artistic aesthetic styles uh, really meant for who Mexicans were, who I was, and also what had happened to indigenous people uh, whose, whose expressions, whose genius, whose caring for the earth and each other had really been confined to a museum. This really concerned me. And this was really the beginning of my understanding that colonialism had had a long-term influence of erasing, in a sense, indigenous lives uh, and their histories and creativity. What struck me about one of our early visits down there with you was uh, the Zocalo and the cathedral, and that the actual stones had been taken from the rubble of the Aztec temples to rebuild this cathedral. And I just had never seen anything so violent and, and it, it was just horrifying to me. And then you proceeded to take us to different villages. And I remember seeing, we'd, we'd go and visit these churches all scattered all over Mexico. And the same thing had happened all over Mexico where the pyramids and sacred spaces were leveled. And then out of the rubble, the colonists built these churches. So they, made, they held down to the sacred space, but reoriented it to Christianity. And then they hired artisans to go inside and paint murals on the walls and that would have angels in the ceiling they could look up to. And you pointed out, I'll never forget it, look at their feet because these angels had sandals on their feet and they were meant to be walking on the earth. I will never forget that moment. And all these doors just kept opening the farther we toured Mexico with you. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's a great memory. And um, um, well, you, you talk about uh, something very important for the listeners to understand. The Catholic Cathedral, the National Cathedral of, of Mexico, which is this monumental uh, church uh, that really represents the way in which the Catholic Church tried to educate people about its, its symbols, its purpose, but also its conquest of the indigenous world uh, was, uh, was built in part from the stones from the great Aztec temple. That is when the Spaniards uh, blew this temple apart with cannon and had Indian peoples dismantle it, they then took those stones and they put them as the foundation and the very walls of part of the Catholic church, which shows two things. Number one, uh, what I would call the defacement of the indigenous world, but also the way in which in, in, in certain communities where either there are many indigenous people or the indigenous people that are there are able to fight back and survive, they somehow get embedded, sometimes in hidden ways, in the very architecture, ideas, laws, and styles of life. Uh, but there's, there's a kind of a defacement and a hiddenness, but also an embeddedness. And I think we see that in what you have done up there in Syracuse. Um, but, but let me... Let, let me come at, uh, uh, respond to this idea of defacement and being embedded. Uh, 
uh, by just reading something that I was reading this morning. I'm reading <clears throat> this book by Luc Manon, Louis Manon. Uh, it's called The Free World. Uh, and it's about ideas and culture uh, uh, between World War II and the, during the, the Cold War. And, and in a chapter uh, that I was reading this morning called Hollywood, Paris, Hollywood, there is a line that made me think about uh, what we're talking about and what you're doing. He, he, Manon is talking about uh, the making of movies when they first started. And he's talking about how um, the movies started really in Paris, but they were taken over by Hollywood. And he's got this incredible line. <clears throat> in 1910, two thirds of the movies shown in the world were made in France. American audiences watched Westerns imported from France in which the Indians wore mustaches. Now, what this says to me in terms of what uh, Sandy Bigtree was just talking about, this is, this is about what the Christian doctrine of, of, of discovery is partly about. And that is, it's about the defacement. You got Indians with mustaches. In other words, you're defacing these people. Um, and, and what happens during colonialism, uh, given in the example that Sandy Bigtree gave with the stones, is the colonialism defaced the earth. It defaced the, the land and the relationship that people who've been living on the land for thousands of years had with the land. Um, it also... You know, we talk about the idea of the legal part of this, uh, uh, you know, this uh, doctrine of discovery. Um, there's a lot of, but really, what, the, what I see in the in the legal history of this is a defacement of the of the worldview of these people. You deface the worldview, uh, you deface the earth, and then you deface the people. Uh, in other words, this is really a form of tremendous tremendous aggression, not on the part of the native people, so they always like to talk about the aggression of the native, but it's it's part of the, the aggression uh, of the Europeans, the colonialists, and that aggression gets put into the buildings, it gets put into the way the people are treated, it gets put into the legal system, which is really based on a cosmovision, that is a religious vision. So I think Sandy Bigtree's example of how the stones are defaced and then embedded uh, is a very, a very good, very important one to, to mention. That's great. Thank you. Um, I wonder if we could go back to the Div School at the University of Chicago uh, in, and um, you could talk about, because one of the, you know, some of the thinkers that you introduced uh, both of us too, actually, but been formative for me. Um, uh, our Merceliade, which who was the um, oh, you know, a primary inspiration for the history of religions for for many many years at the University of Chicago. Um, you were his student, um, but then also very importantly, um, Charles Long, um, who. We lost last year, but Charles Long uh, is is an important voice in this analysis of religion and colonialism, and frankly, the doctrine of Christian discovery that I think gets lost oftentimes in our conversations. Um, you were very close, Professor Long, and um, and I wonder if you could tell us about how he introduced you to the issues of colonialism coming from your experiences as a, as a boy, young boy in Mexico city. Um, but also how this, how he helped frame the intellectual issues around this issue of, um, colonialism and religion. Yes. Well, so when I was uh, growing up, uh, I had an experience that in a sense prepared me for professor Long. Um, and this experience represents uh, something that you and Sandy Bigtree write about in your article about the Columbus statue. And, and that is what, what I began to see 
as a teenager was not only this experience in Mexico, but it was an experience with African-Americans. And it taught me that the demo demography of the country, the human demography of the country was much more diverse um, than in terms of its humanities than what we were able to acknowledge in our school system. Um, and I became very familiar with African-Americans uh, and the African-American presence through my, my father was a basketball coach and he was the first Mexican-American to be a head basketball coach at a major university, which was American University. And at that time, there was no, there was no other college in Maryland uh, or uh, the Washington DC area, except Howard University, which was all black, that allowed black people to play in public sports until my father recruited African-Americans from Washington DC to play uh, at American University. And these, uh, these African-Americans, uh, they became the stars of this team and this team became a championship team. So I grew up with a Mexican-American, a brown man, coaching white men and black men uh, in a team that was fully integrated and was despised by many of the other teams that, that they played against. And I witnessed this. And so I began to see not only the indigenous presence through my experience in Mexico, the Mexican presence through my father, but the African-American presence. Uh, and so I was sort of tuned in by the time I was 15 uh, to, to see this rich human diversity and to wonder uh, you know, why uh, these different groups didn't have equal or almost semi-equal presence in the stories uh, of the country and in the institutions and, and so forth. So what happened was these two experiences prepared me when I got to the University of Chicago uh, for some of the gifts that came to me. And one of the first gifts, as you said, Phil, came from the writings of Mir Chiliadi. And I was very impressed with an essay that Iliadi wrote called The New Humanism. And in The New Humanism, Iliadi says, and this is written in the 19, well, 1950s, that was coming over the horizon of the West, that is the horizon of the universities, the horizon of the United States, um, are uh, the spiritualities and the histories of Asian people, of indigenous people, of Latin American people, and that this is going to have a major impact on the way in which uh, education is taught and people become aware of the of the spiritual soil of human cultures, is what Iliadi said. And this idea about things coming over the horizon, indigenous people coming over the horizon, over the African-Americans coming over the horizon. Well, they'd already been over the horizon, but, but now people were becoming aware of their very crucial presence. They're part of the demography. Um, but the, the, the second gift from the University of Chicago to me came from Charles Long uh, not only what he taught me, but Long was interested in, in learning about uh, what the students brought to the university. And so he, he was interested in me as an African-American, I mean, as a Mexican-American, in some of the students in terms of, of, of their indigenous background. There was another student uh, who uh, was a Mexican-American who had uh, a connection to indigenous people, Irene Vasquez. Uh, there was a... Uh, Michio Araki from Japan. So what Charles Long then did was he talked about colonialism being part of what's coming over the horizon. That is, people were becoming aware of how central colonialism was, not only to the formation of all of these people in the United States, but he also was very impressed with how this colonialism was a total, was a total movement. Uh, it was legal, it was ideological, it was physical, uh, and not only was colonialism uh, 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 having these elements, but it had a religious tinge to it, that it was always justified uh, in terms of language like the new world. Language of the new world really meant a, a world that was like the cre new creation of the world. So what Charles Long said, that was so important is that colonialism represented for the people who were indigenous through the language of the colonizer, it represented a second creation of the world. That is, indigenous people would understand 
that their world had been created by, by the makers, by the creators. But because of the suffering that they underwent, because of the languages that were imported and the languages that were partly lost, that their condition was like a new beginning for them. The new world was a new world for everybody. It was a new world for indigenous people, for African people. It wasn't just a new world for the people that came from Europe. And this newness was like a second creation. Uh, and indigenous people and African people who had undergone the second creation now had to do the work of not only telling the story of the second creation, but in the world of Charles Long, taking this tragedy that had happened to them and finding new religious resources to make a better world for everybody. And it was only these people who had undergone the second creation who would be able to identify the resources out of this tragedy that could help everybody come to a new world and a new humanity. And it seems to me that you see this type of discovery of new resources in the work of African-Americans, Martin Luther King, Cornell West, like Dolores Huerta, and also into in this, uh, this great center of peace that you have there. Uh, and the way we tell the story uh, of what Hiawatha and those people uh, communicated uh, to us. So Charles Long really was the person that articulated this relationship between the tragedy of colonialism and the people who could find new resources out of it to make a better world. Do you need help catching up on today's topic? Or do you want to learn more about the resources mentioned? If so, please check our website at podcast.doctrineofdiscovery.org for more information. Now, back to the conversation. One of the things that I remember about those meetings in Boulder and Princeton of the Mesoamerican Archive and Research Project was long essentially putting us all on notice to be keenly aware of how we're understanding religion and how it operates. I mean, um, we would, um, it, it was almost thrilling to be able to listen to Charles Long and his way of of framing um, the deficiencies that we have as academics uh, to understand the the tragedy that you were just speaking of. You know, I mean, um, one of the things that we're trying to do is try to get inside what that must have been like uh, when, for example, Cortez uh, lands on the shores of what's now Mexico and encounters these people. Um, there was the reading of the requerimiento, right? Or the requirement um, that was horrible. <laughs> I mean, it was terrifying and yet made perfect sense to the, the Christians at the time, you know, that were there to both, to both evangelize and destroy uh, simultaneously. And I mean, you're uniquely qualified to talk about these things, these aspects of conquest that involve, directly involve religion. Um, we've talked about the fascination with indigenous peoples and their, their traditions, but also there is the, religion is the vehicle for this trauma as well, uh, and particularly in Mexico. And we don't hear about that enough frankly, in North, uh, well, the United States. Yes, well, so Charles Long, when he spoke, as you know, he, he was kind of listening to music. He was like, he at some point, it was almost like listening to music through his words. And um, Charles Long uh, really taught us about this contradiction in the study of religion. On the one hand, religion uh, you know, we came out of this period in European history, study of religion came out of this period in European history uh, where people were raising really wonderful questions about epistemology, what is knowledge, and also turning their tools of learning on everything from, from plants to the stars, uh, as well as uh, human communities. But at the same time that this new type of inquiry was being made, 
and that was the same exact same time that colonialism was going out, uh, was was affecting every society in the world in some way, and doing it in a top-down approach. Uh, you know, you you've got this language of the doctrine of discovery. See, now whenever you have a word like doctrine, see what you have there is a statement of authority, a statement of hierarchy, and a statement that says this is already an accepted kind of almost universal view of the world. That's what the doctrine is. Uh, and, and you have this notion of discovery. It's not a doctrine of meeting. It's not a doctrine of encounter. It's not a, a doctrine that says we were engaged with one another. It's a doctrine of discovery. Now, this requerimiento and the doctrine of discovery, let, let me give you an example of how much this attitude this attitude uh, that is a kind of a cosmological attitude uh, appeared uh, in the Spanish mind. Um, the very first, uh, well, I spent uh, 10 years uh, rereading Bernal Diaz del Castillo, uh, uh, his great memoir uh, of, of his participation uh, in the military wars in Mexico and Guatemala. Um, it's called the uh, the true history of the conquest of Mexico. That's like saying the doctrine, the true history of the conquest of New Spain. And in the very first paragraph, in the very first paragraph that he writes, you, you have an example of how the, some of the work that the two of you are doing on understanding the doctrine of discovery, how this got, this doctrine of discovery, this attitude of, of superiority uh, justifying this type of violence uh, became a part of the everyday language of the Spaniards. In the very first paragraph of this of this document that he writes, his memoir, he says he's writing this uh, he's writing this to the to the emperor. You know, he's writing this to the to his Majesty, and he says, "I'm going to tell you the story." of how, quote, all the true conquerors, my companions, who served his majesty. And then here are the four terms that are really elements of the Christian, of the doctrine of Christian discovery. He says, what we did, we served his majesty by, quote, discovering, conquering, pacifying, and settling most of the provinces of New Spain. Now these are the this is these are the key terms in the first paragraph. What did we do? We discovered them. In other words, in a sense, we made these people up ourselves. We made them up. We discovered them. That's the first thing we did. They, they nobody knew about them until we got there. They didn't even know each other until we got there. But the second word is conquering. In other words, we beat them up. We used our aggression to injure them. The third word is pacifying. What does he mean by that? He means by pacifying that we came there, uh, we had this requirement that we read, and the requirement that we read said, look, we have arrived, um, and we came here to, to find you uh, and to control you, but as a way of pacifying you, we're going to invite you to become like us in a religious way by accepting our religion, uh, and that will calm you down. Um, now, if you don't want to be calmed down, uh, we then, in this requerimento, we, got the, we have the right to kill you. We have the right to kill you. Okay? So we're here to discover you conquer you and control you, kill you. But the last word is really crucial, and that is the word settling. What this means and what is crucial in terms of this whole story of colonialism is that we're here to take your land. That's what he's saying. We're here for the land, see? And what you find the next page, Bernal Diaz del Castillo said, when we left Spain to get on this little boat, and be sick for three months to come over here. 
they told us, he said, they told us when we got here, we would be given some Indians who would work on our plantation. So this is really what this colonialism is all about. It's not about freedom. It's not about creating a new world where people can flourish. It's not about the land of the brave. It's about discovering, conquering, pacifying, and settling. And this is what I see. And and what he what he what he says in that first paragraph is the Christian church is backing us up all the way. So here is a document that is written in Guatemala in the 1560s, and he's got your Christian doctrine of discovery right there. Right there. So this became the worldview of these people. And as a sense of the worldview, this is what Charles Long meant by religion. Religion could also be part of this type of sophisticated, legalized aggression. Yeah. And and I think one of the things that Long was trying to communicate, at least I heard, was that if you want to know about these people, if you want to know about the Aztecs or the Maya or Inca or the Haudenosaunee, you have to deal with that colonialism as a fundamental question, right? As a fundamental filter, we'll say. Um, so it's not just that we can just sort of peer into Aztec society and understand who they are, like most Mesoamericans assume, or Mesoamericanists assume. But rather, we have to deal with this fundamental question of colonialism, destruction, as you said, um, that that is an impediment to our understanding these others, these significant others. I mean, one of the things that um, I was attracted to was the work of uh, Sahagun, Franciscan uh, priest, because um, he was the one that's you know assembled this encyclopedia during the 16th century and. And yet, um, simultaneously, was destroying the society and culture of the of the Nahuatl-speaking people of the time. You know, uh, this was to be used as a tool of conversion or assimilation, if you like, or something else. And you know, maybe you could speak about how there are all these texts, these pre-Columbian texts. Uh, codices that you've worked with very closely, um, and what happened to those? You know, I mean, we had to supplant them with like the works of Sahagun and others. Yeah, well, so um, <clears throat> I like that very much. Um, you know, um, how to understand any of these people? Um, you really can't, in my view, you know, start before colonialism. When, when I was in college, you know, they taught us this uh, technique that some of these um, Mediterranean authors used to use when they wrote these great books, the, you know, the Aeneid or, uh, you know, the Odyssey. And some of them used this technique called in medias res, you know, in the middle of the story. You start in the middle of the story. And that's the way you got to understand you see uh, Native American peoples today. That's the way you got to understand the Americas. You got to start in the middle of the story. Now, the middle of the story is colonialism, because we know that these people were here for thousands and thousands of years uh, before Europeans came. And we know that they're here now uh, doing their thing, you know, struggling, fighting back, creating, uh, you know, uh, keeping the longhouse alive. But if you really want to, understand our relationship to these people, you got to start in medias res. That is in the middle of the story. And the middle of the story is when the indigenous people saw these Europeans uh, away from their homes, coming into their communities. And it's that encounter, that exchange, which really tells you uh, the situation that we are in, in order to understand and, and see that, try to see through that experience 
uh, to how the indigenous and Europeans and Africans had to deal with that encounter. And if you can, as Charles Long would say, you crawl back through history to learn, uh, you know, what are the resources of the great law of peace? What are the resources of the Declaration of Independence and so forth? So you mentioned Sahagun. So for your listeners, uh, Bernardino de Sahagun was a Franciscan priest who was educated in Salamanca, Spain. Uh, and he was part of a new wave of Franciscans who had uh, been trained in their theology in a kind of a humanistic way. That is, they came to ask questions about <clears throat> the cultural forms uh, of, um, of society, including the people they wanted to evangelize. And Sahagun was a linguistic genius who came, uh, as you know, to Mexico uh, very early on after the arrival of Cortes uh, and began to learn the languages of indigenous people. Uh, and two things happened to him. Number one, he saw that he could use their own language as a format to evangelize them, to convert them. But he also saw that they had this brilliant, marvelous language. This language had a very different way of telling stories, of using symbols and metaphors, of uh, developing rhetorical strategies. Uh, and this began to change him a little bit uh, as he used uh, his own research with native peoples, uh, native teenagers and their families to reconstruct the world uh, of, of the indigenous people before he got there. That was his, so that he could use this as a way of uh, training other priests to know what it was they had to change. Now, what's really important to me here is for your listeners to understand uh, that uh, we often use the term transculturation rather than acculturation to talk about what happened to indigenous people during this time. Indigenous people had to pick and choose not only things from their own deep tradition, but also from the tradition that was being uh, injected into their society. And they picked and chose, indigenous people did, they picked and chose the Virgin Mary. They liked the Virgin Mary. Indigenous people, they liked the name of Santiago because he rode a horse uh, and he was tough. Indigenous people, they liked the Jesus and the cross, but they also re realized that they related to their indigenous female uh, uh, deities, that they related to some of their own heroes, that they related to some of their own stories, and they put this together. But it's also important in terms of what you're saying, Phil, about Sahagun, that not enough has been done of this, to understand how the Europeans also changed. They also underwent change, you see, and the changes that they underwent are often ignored or minimized. See? It's like what you've been teaching people about how uh, uh, the Haudenosaunee's uh, view of integration and peace and balance and negotiation influenced the way in which uh, Franklin and Jefferson and these people came to understand their society. They underwore change. They were changed too by those stones, those ideas that were embedded uh, in the way in which discourse was happening. It's very important to understand that everybody changed. Charles Long liked to say about uh, this process of who changed and the new kind of world that was created. He liked to say, the colonizer will never tell you the truth about their relationship with the colonized. He said, they'll never tell you the truth. They'll pretend like, well, they don't know them that the colonized people didn't do anything meaningful, that the colonized people were just standing in the way, that they just occupied the land, but it's all this stuff. He said, he said, they'll never tell you the truth. He said, but the colonized people, Charles Long would say, I like this phrase. He said, the colonized people, they were colonizer watchers. They were always watching the colonizers and they were watching the colonizers who didn't realize that the colonized were watching them. Uh, and as a result, uh, they have, the colonized have a superior epistemological, that is they have a superior understanding of what is the condition that we are sharing now. And that is particularly what these people, uh, you know, who are still pushing the, 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 the doctrine of Christian discovery, that's what they cannot allow us 
to put into the public discourse. They do not want us to be able to show that everybody changed in this situation. And the people that know the story most honestly with Veritas are the colonized people. And you see now what's happening in this country. You see, with not only Black Lives Matter, uh, with things that are taking place there in your community, um, is there's much more of an affirmation uh, uh, that the people who underwent slavery, underwent colonialism, underwent the robbery of their lands, they're the people who can really free us from this ignorance so that there can be resources for a really honest, uh, uh, balanced view of where we go from here. And I think the work that you're doing, Phil, on the indigenous values related to the land, you know, this has to be, this has to be developed and taught in as many places as we can. So I think that my statement now that you just heard, that's really out of the legacy of what Charles Long was teaching us. That's, that's fantastic. I wonder if we could kind of pursue this contemporary line. Um, where do you see uh, issues of the doctrine of Christian discovery, of, um, of colonialism in our contemporary world? I mean, I, I tend to see it in a lot of different ways, in sort of a hardening of, of Christian, certain Christian worldviews, you know, the, uh, an intolerance and yet a kind of openness to fantastical stories uh, about, about uh, say, the election or previous election or whatever. You know, the, there, there are a lot of ways in which colonial, colonialism is here to stay in some ways, but, you know, also it, it, it appears, there's these appearances, you know, these manifestations of colonialism in our contemporary world. I wonder if you could just kind of think about, speak about that for, for, for a while. Well, the manifestation of this uh, colonialism, uh, is, you know, best has been beautifully expressed by Toni Morrison uh, in some of the essays that she wrote uh, called Source of Self-Regard. And one of the things she says in there is that um, an essay called The Foreigner's Home, um, she says that uh, the way this colonialism is being expressed is by turning to the people who are native to the land and saying that they're foreigners in the land, that they don't deserve the land. But these are the people who were natives to the land. See? Um, uh, and uh, you, you see this, for instance, uh, along the border, see? along the border. Um, you know, right now I'm involved in a process that's taking place in El Paso in about three weeks. It's called the construction of the Healing Garden. And the Healing Garden is a, a monument with plants and flowers and other things uh, that is uh, trying to deal with the uh, citywide trauma suffered when a white man drove 10 hours from Dallas um, on August the 3rd, 2019 and murdered uh, 23 Mexican and Mexican-Americans in a Walmart. Uh, and his claim was that these people were invading, uh, they were invading uh, Texas. Uh, these people are all natives to this area. And these people are natives to the area. They're natives to El Paso. And these people have indigenous, uh, Spanish, uh, Mexican, uh, Anglo mixture in them. Uh, their families have been living there for 300 years. And this guy is telling us that along with the border fence uh, and uh, along with the, the, the whole four years of the previous administration bad-mouthing these people, that these people are foreigners um, in their own land. <laughs> um, uh, and, and so this whole thing about the border... Uh, the border wall. Uh, uh, this is an example of what we're talking about. Um, you know, I think that, you know, this whole discourse, discourse that's going on now about critical race theory, and what is so pathetic about this is when I'm watching 
you know, CNN or any of these people, they're talking about critical race theory and they don't even know what it is. They, they, they never tell you what it is. You know, the critical race theory, just take the word theory. What is a theory? A theory means that you have, you have some expression from somebody. You have an expression uh, that may be a symbol. It may be a dance. Uh, it may be a line like um, all men are created equal. You know? And the theory is that you bring something else to understand that. That maybe you bring you know, a language analysis or maybe you bring uh, the law to understand the word equal. Uh, or maybe you bring anthropology to understand the word men, you know. And when you bring something else to understand this, and that's a theory, you raise a question about, well, who were the men? Who did we mean when we said men? Uh, what, what did we mean when we said equal? Um, who was included in the men? Who was excluded in the men? The, that's what a theoretical involvement will do with an expression, you know. Um, Maybe you, you ask the question, what was the race of the men who were in this statement? You know, uh, that's the race part. Critical simply means you're asking deeper questions about what does this mean? See? And in this critical race theory, uh, what's so important about it is the, the response to it, which is basically said to me, number one, we will not ever, this is the, this is the critique against critical race theory. We will never admit to the destruction of indigenous people and to their reliance and their, their resilience. We cannot acknowledge that. That's why we can't stand critical race theory because critical race theory raises the question about what happened in history. Okay? And the second thing that they cannot understand in this country, cannot accept these people, is that slavery was a long event just like the destruction of, of the eagles is a long event. That is, this is not something that happened in 1619 or um, uh, took place in 1776. This has become part of our mentality, our biology of who we are. And that is what the people who uh, are, are, are putting down uh, what indigenous people are trying to say um, when they don't want these names for these sports teams. They don't want to face up to the fact that the destructiveness that went along with the formation of the country and all of its good stuff, the destructiveness is still with us. And you cannot, you cannot deal with it unless you deal with it. See? And it seems to me this is really what is crucial uh, uh, in terms of the way in which uh, you and some of your uh, colleagues up there uh, are introducing this nasty, dangerous word, peace. <laughs> you know, that's a word. That's one of these radical, critical words, peace. You know, uh, peace, peace in El Paso, peace in the face of the man who killed all these people. And he said, I just came here to kill as many Mexicans as possible. Peace. You know, wow. Wow. I know you've been very active in this peace garden. Um, I wish you well down there. I think it's anytime we can have a healing space, healing garden, I think we need it. Um, well, um, I, I would, I, I mean, we're bouncing around here. <laughs> we're definitely <laughs> bouncing around on a lot of things. But that was uh, a wonderful critique of what's going on in the United States right now. It seems to me, too, it seems to us, both of us, that, you know, these are urgent matters, too. They just didn't disappear in, you know, 1619 or 1521, which, you know, we're we're uh, we're at a, you know, a big year when it comes to the destruction of the Aztec 500th anniversary, you know, this year. Um, and um, I mean, um, you know. These are not just issues of the past or academic issues, but they're urgent issues of our future as well, you know, um, as you're indicating here. And so, um, uh, you know, um, 
I, I don't really have a question so much as how do we get these ideas, these concepts, this education about the past as a matter for our shared future to the children? I mean, I'm wondering how you uh, how you explain these things to your students. I think you have a demonstration of this now, but but how do we um, communicate this more widely? We come across um, people who don't want to talk about the dark side of peacemaking, just what you've talked about, right. and they want to lean towards the positive thinking movement. And frankly, that's the church Trump grew up in, <laughs> you know? And so peace is not is not about the absence of this public discourse that is deeply troubling and challenging. And, you know, you have to integrate all of it and work our way through it. You can't ignore the problems. That's what I said in the beginning about the history of religions. You're talking about colonialism and the problem of, of that's keeping us from obtaining peace. Sid Hill says peace in, in the message of Scano, peace can only be obtained when you're in proper relationship to the natural world. So what is that going to uncover with all the mining that's going on all over the world or the pollution of all the rivers and oceans? That's not going to be peaceful for some because it just gets very complicated. But yeah. the basic tenet of living in balance with the natural world, try, try doing that. <laughs> yeah, it's not just kumbaya between right. human beings, but how are we going to, how are we going to realize or get people through that trauma in El Paso, you know? How is that, how is that possible, you know? Um, because we're all traumatized in various degrees. And it's but, disruptive. We need right. to do that work. It seems to me that, um, you know, in a way it comes down to, you know, what, what, is, what is our view of the human's capacity for destruction and creation, for caritas and aggression, for love and hatred. Uh, and if you want to have this, um, you know, pie in the sky view of what human beings are, are doing, you know, one of the things I, I did in preparation for today's dialogue is I went and not only read your article about Columbus, the statue of Columbus, but I I read to some of the other articles that were referenced there uh, about the legal history in the United States and the way these Supreme Court decisions um, you know, basically uh, reiterated the, the doctrine of Christian uh, discovery. As though this was not destructive. I mean, you get these, these people are repeating over and over again that we... Uh, uh, we white Americans, um, we stole this land and it was all right. I mean, that, that's what they're saying. That, that basically these Supreme Court decisions say, in effect, <laughs> these indigenous people, what the, you know, what this guy Santorum said recently, the, these people, you know, they, they, were, they didn't do anything with the land until we came along. So we had a right to steal it. Um, as though this is a good thing, rather than it was, it was at least uh, a paradoxical thing, and it had evil in it. And there's an inability for people to see this. I, I once heard a, a terrific psychoanalyst uh, in Boulder give a talk, but maybe the best talk I ever heard. Um, and he was talking about uh, is he called it excavating Freud, and and he said one of the reasons that people have a resistance to Freud is that Freud really saw that there was both a creative side and a very dark side to people, to all people. And if you didn't pay attention to the dark side, if you didn't always keep a vigilance about it, then it was going to win. And you had to keep a vigilance about the dark side and try to give the life side an upper hand. And that's what the peace is. The peace is trying... The peace is not saying, the peace movement is not saying there's no war. It's saying there is war. We want to look at war. And people can say war does this good stuff and war does that good stuff. But it's the peace that you've got to give it the upper hand. But you don't give it the upper hand by ignoring the destructiveness of the doctrine uh, itself. 
Uh, you talked about, the, you just used the phrase, Sandy Big Tree, the proper relationship with the earth. The proper relationship. Well, we know there's an improper relationship, and we do it all the time. So you can't ignore that. And what a lot of these people in this, uh, this kind of Christian church, that uh, they want to, there's a Sunday school view of it, of church, of Jesus who was crucified, um, is that they don't want to face up to all of the improperness of the relationship that any group can have. So I think it really comes down in a way to a, a much more honest view of, 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 the, human, of the human being. This, uh, this lecturer said, he said, you know, the damned evidence keeps coming in on Freud's side. You know, I read the New York Times this morning. God, I felt so bad after it, every page. All of the destructiveness that's going on in Haiti, uh, in this country, uh, in Syria. I mean, human beings have this capacity to take the doctrine of Christian discovery or, or you know, Muslim dis Islam discovery when it's used in this destructive way, and they like it. There's a whole bunch of, they like this. And that's what we saw, it seems to me, with, uh, you know, what, what we've had to face in this country in the last four years in the government. Well, it brings to mind um, just our story of the creation twins at the center. And the, and the thing is, like the Sahagun, you know, the Jesuits came into Haudenosaunee territory and began recording the oral traditions in a book. So, you know, we have a lot of Native people today that have learned these stories from the Jesuits, in effect, and those histories. And um, what they did was they, they referred to the creation twins that created everything on this earth as one being evil and one being good. But that's not, though, that's not how the words translate in Haudenosaunee language because they're integrated. We wouldn't have the world if we hadn't had both because it takes both for creation to ex exist. Right. A little more yin and yang like, you know, or, you know, um, there's an interaction there, which is expressed in terms of the game of lacrosse. So positive thinking is as detrimental as all the violence and destruction, you know, the church has done because you have to integrate both mm -hmm. to move well, forward. I think that's absolutely right. And there, there you have an example of, of um, you know, the Jesuits come in uh, and they happen to be, they liked, they liked learning. They, uh, they, they tended to, uh, you know, camp out and then the indigenous people become, become like curious about them and they start a dialogue and then they start writing so what you got to do now is you got to take, you take what the Jesuits did and you, and you take it back, you know you you just like just like Sandy Big Tree did you take it back, um, um, it's like uh, you know you take back what the devil stole, you take back what the Jesuits stole, you say thank you Mr. Jesuit but let me <laughs> let, let, let let me reinterpret, in the tradition of the people that you heard listen to, what this is, and I think that's. In terms of Phil Arnold's question about, you know, how do we, you know, how do we develop a healing peace approach? Uh, I think you have to do what you're doing. You have to form, you have to form collaborative groups. That's what I did in the archive. Yes. In order for new knowledge to come, you know, don't be an individual author who just writes acknowledgments of people. Uh, I mean, you can do that. You should do that. But really form groups who are going to bring different perspectives uh, and find a way to, to develop a, a civil but very honest and sometimes hard-nosed conversation so that a new knowledge can come out, just what the Sandy Big Tree did. The creation comes out of this friction sometimes as long as you're trying to give the life force the upper hand. Mm -hmm. Excellent way to end our um, our conversation here, David. Um, your impact, the impact of the Mesoamerican Archive and Research Project continues to have ripple effects here in Onondaga Nation territory. Well, let me say before I hear from Sandy Big Tree, you know, Charles Long and I used to talk a lot 
and uh, it often came around back to the two of you. Uh, Charles Long was somebody, and I'm going to say some of this at his memorial service, which is going to be on, uh, by the way, it's now scheduled for the 27th of August. So I'll, I'll send you, I'll get the word sent to you in case you want to come down. Yeah, I'd like to. Um, see, Charles Long had this word regard. It was like, it was more than respect. You know, regard day, he said, you know, these, if you're going to study the Haudenosaunee, you got to have regard for the humanity. And he would say, um, you know, if you don't come at this with regard, if you don't realize that the people you're studying are smarter than you about what you're studying, so you're lost. You don't have any regard for them. But you had to also, with Charles Long, you had to develop his regard for you because he had a critical eye and he had a high regard for the two of you. We often talked about it. And he, uh, of all of the students and then the grand the grand students, the grandchildren students like the two of you, he really had regard for what you were doing uh, in your work up there. Uh, and he didn't always have regard for some of the people that he trained and the people that came out of that training, but he had regard for you too. Thank you. Thank you. We never would have landed here without you and Charles Long. And Charles Long. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. <laughs> um, thank you so much, David. Um, we want to encourage our listening audience to please check our website for information we'll be posting notes, uh, resources of David's that you can have access to. Um, and, you know, surely form your own kind of discussion groups and use any of these resources we're posting because that's the purpose of this, to get people coming together and talking about these difficult issues. Um, again, wonderful talking with you, David, and everybody be well until our next uh, discussion. Thank you for tuning in. We'd like to thank our guest, David Carrasco, and our hosts, Philip Arnold and Sandra Bigtree. The producers of this podcast were Adam DJ Brett and Jordan Brady Lowe. Our intro and outro is Social Dancing Music by Oris Edwards and Regis Cook. This podcast is produced in collaboration with Syracuse University Engaged Humanities and the Department of Religion, along with Indigenous Values Initiative and the American Indian Law Alliance.